that you would bless the children this morning. Lord, I thank you that they teach us what it is to have fun. Teach us what it is to be bold. Teach us what it is to ask for what they want. Lord, just bless them this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm so excited about what God's going to do amongst the youth and kids in this church. We'll give more on the feedback on the Vision Sunday. Um, but Jamie, who's working in the high school lunchtime club of sort of 25, 30 young uh, kids coming to a lunchtime club. And we're just praying that they'll transition and come into our youth group as well that we're doing on a Wednesday evening. It's just great to see what God is doing. So if you want to pull up a pew, if you want to uh, grab a drink, or um, that's what I'm doing, then we are going to uh, dive into, I think it's week is it week three of our series in prayer? Week three. And um, for those that have been away, um, the first week we did a bit of an introduction. Do you remember the guys, some of the guys from church were sat here and we just had a conversation about prayer. And, um, and last uh, two weeks ago, we looked at the power of prayer, James 5. The prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. And we just unpacked what is the power in prayer. And then last week, we looked at the posture of prayer. Do you remember Mark 10, how we had these two seemingly opposing postures in prayer of the disciples who wanted to be someone and then blind Bartimaeus who wanted to see someone. And I'm obsessed with the letter P at the moment. This is like, um, how did I describe it last week? It's like Sesame, Groundhog Day of Sesame Street. We're just on the same letter all the time. And so we're sticking with P. So we're going to go for the, not the Prosecco of prayer, no. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to go for the perspective of prayer this morning, okay? So I'm going to preach around the title, The Perspective of Prayer. And if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Genesis 15. Genesis 15. And um, as you're finding that, uh, don't worry if you've not got a Bible, there's some on the connect point or it'll come up on the Bible on the screen just up there. But we are introduced a few, ver a few chapters before Genesis 15. We're introduced to this man called Abraham. If I say Abraham during the talk, he becomes Abraham, so just bear with me. But he's, he's known as Abraham to begin with. And they believe, scholars believe that uh, around chapter 13, that Abraham is 75 years of age. Isn't that amazing? God calls him to, to step out and to trust him and says, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have land. You're going to have descendants. And he's 75 years old. Now, it's really significant that God says, I'm going to bless you with descendants and land. Because descendants in, in the ancient Middle East was, was not just passing on the family name. It was about something to do with God's blessing. There was a belief that God's blessing, God's a God of the generations of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and, and carrying on the family line is carrying on this blessing of what God is doing within our own family. And the idea of land, land was really important. Land wasn't just kind of like real estate and I've got my little plot of land. But if you look in 2 Kings 5, I think it is, there's a, a commander of the army called Naaman. And he asks his servants, get two mulefuls full of dirt. I don't know how much a mulefull is, but it's a significant amount, I'd assume. It's not like a little shovelful. Get a mulefull, two mulefuls full of dirt and bring them with me wherever I go. Because wherever I go, I want to worship God. So there's something connected with God's blessing through the generations. God blessing upon a place at a specific time and place for a specific people. And so descendants and land were really important in the ancient world. And so Abraham is promised descendants and he's promised land. And then uh, all he's got at the moment is Sarai, his wife, and his nephew Lot and some servants. And so they, they go out and they're trusting God. And then there's a little bit of a, 
a kerfuffle between Lot and Abraham, and Lot goes his way to uh, uh, takes his land, and, and Abraham is, is is off in another direction, and and God says to Abraham, "Look, you look north, south, and east, and west. It's going to be yours." And then Abraham has to go back and rescue Lot from a place called Sodom and Gomorrah, which is as bad as it sounds. And uh, he rescues him out of that. Then they have this encounter with the King Melchizedek, and it's a little bit strange. But then um, this moment happens in chapter 15. And chapter 15 starts after all these things. Do you know what? Scholars believe that 20 years passes between chapter 13 and chapter 15. After all these things. After 20 years since God has promised that he is going to bless Abraham. So let's just read together. Chapter 15, it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham. I am your shield. Your reward shall be great. But Abraham said, Oh God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and, the number, and, and number the stars. And if you're able to number them, then he said to him, so shall be your offspring. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Father God, we just thank you. Lord, we just press pause for a moment. Jesus, we sing of all that you've done for us. Lord, I think so much of what you've been laying on people's hearts this morning is what you want to communicate. So we just ask, Holy Spirit, will you just continue to be with us this morning and speak into our hearts. Let us be hearers and doers of your word. And Lord, this weekend, we pray in advance for next weekend that your nation, England, will be triumphant in the Six Nations. Amen. Six Nations starts next weekend, so my prayer life is increasing greatest tournament in the world for God's own nation will for rugby yes the Americans not having a clue (laughs) I want to talk to you about perspective this morning is that okay perspective perspective is that thing that you look far away and something huge can look tiny and then you bring it close and it could be the size of Mount Everest perspective I love taking photos in fact I have a degree in taking photos Um, and you learn about perspective when you're learning about photography And what I love now is that I have a phone that I can take anywhere and it's actually got a really good camera on it. So I don't take all my big camera equipment around that I used to. And you can take a photo. In fact, I'm going to do one now just to show you practically. So smile. Get your smiling face on. I'm going to do it right from over here. Okay. I've not done one of these before, so I'm hoping it works. Get smiling. There we go. Yeah, church faces. Oh, it's telling me I'm going wonky. There we go. Fantastic. So I I hope that's saved. So I've just taken a photo, and I can show you that photo right now. And if I want to, I've even got an app that I can send that to my printer at home, and it can be waiting for me when I get home, and it's printed. Isn't that amazing? You can take a photo, and I can look at it and go, oh, there's everybody. I I can zoom in. Oh, some people have their eyes closed. (laughs) But it's amazing, because when I was growing up, my dad had an old Pentax SLR. Do you remember those? The big clunky with the wind in the, fray, uh, the, the, the film on and everything. And you couldn't see the photo until it had been developed. And so dad would take a photo and we just hoped that we were looking good. It's not like these days you, you can flick through and go, oh, a few too many chins, we'll delete that one. Um, you just had to hope that it was a good photo. 
Um, but the thing was, there was this process to developing the film. And so dad would take photos, and then after the holiday, he'd take like seven of these films off to Boots and hand them over the counter. And then you'd have to wait while they take them off and they process the film. Now, Cara knows this process better than I do because she teaches this. But um, they, essentially what they do is they enlarge the film and then they put it in, in these solutions and develop the photo. And it all takes place in the dark room. It all happens in the dark room. But can I tell you something? The photos don't live there. The photos don't remain in the dark room. You see, what happens is they're developed, they're hung up. So we don't all go into the dark room and go, oh, that's a lovely photo, that. Now, amazing. Oh, let's leave the dark room now. Because the dark room is where the process of developing happens. It's not where the photos are going to spend the rest of their life. We've just read of this encounter of God and Abraham. And God has promised some stuff to Abraham, and he's promised big. He really has. Because he says, I'm going to be your shield. Your reward will be great. Essentially, what God is saying is, I'm blessing you with me. Okay, I've said some other stuff. But I will be your shield. Your reward will be great. Abraham, you've got me. And Abraham goes, great. What about the stuff you promised me? What about all the stuff that you said you were going to give me? It's funny, isn't it, how easily we can be like that. God gives us himself. And yet we're like, yeah, but where's all the stuff that you promised me? Where's all the stuff that I'm going to need? And Abraham is struggling. And he's struggling because of these 20 years that have passed where seemingly nothing has happened of what God has promised. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to give you descendants. But where am I? Where, where am I that this land is not mine? And where are my descendants? I've got nothing. And the circumstance of Abraham's life, now at 95 years old, would suggest that God is not going to come through for Abraham. I just wonder what you're believing for. I just wonder what you're believing for, for God in your life. Been waiting 18 months, Lord. God, I'm fed up of waiting, God. When are you going to come through for me? And I love it because Abraham responds to God. I think it's in verse 3. He says, look, God. In, in biblical language, that's behold. Behold. And at the time, if you, if you move down a few verses, it says that God took him outside. We'll get to that in a minute. So that would suggest that Abraham is inside. Okay, so Abraham is inside his tent. I just happen to have a handy scent here. Some of you observant are like, wow, I didn't even see a tent there. So Abraham is inside his tent. He's saying, God, will you look? I can't see anything. It's like he's inside his tent and he can't see anything. He's saying, look, God, you promised me all this stuff. And he's inside his tent where there's no kids' toys, there's no dirty nappies. There's no kids screaming. Sounds like heaven. God, everything I'm looking at is saying that you're not going to fall through for me. God, the circumstances that I'm in right now, everything is reminding me that you are not who you say you are. God, look. I'm in a dark room. God says, come on out, Abraham. Come on out, if you can. Oof. Come on out. And I think it's verse 7. Someone will correct me if I'm, I'm just slightly out of sync on the verses. But he says, come outside and look toward heaven. Come on out and look towards heaven. In this moment of encounter that Abraham is having with God, 
this moment of prayer, God calls him out of the circumstances which seem to suggest that God is not who he said he was. And he calls him out and says, now look to heaven. Look toward heaven. Shift your perspective for a few moments. The perspective of prayer. How about you see things from my point of view for a minute, where one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. Look toward heaven and you see those stars, Abraham. You see them, I want you to start counting them. It's funny, isn't it? God calls him out of the darkness of his circumstances where it's like God seems to be doing nothing and he calls him out into even more darkness. Have you noticed that? So he calls him out of the dark circumstances. Now come outside where it's even darker. And let me tell you, it's dark. No iPhone to flick your torch on. No streetlights. It's dark. And he says to Abraham, now look up. Look up and start to see the stars. Start to count the stars. Look towards heaven. See, the dark rooms in our life is where the development takes place. And just when we think it couldn't get any darker, God calls Abraham out and says, come to where it's even darker and count these stars. And so Abraham, can you imagine Abraham starting to count the stars? I mean, if it's anything like me, it's going to be one, two, miss a few, three trillion. I have no idea how many stars there are. But God knows how many stars there are. God knows just how many, he says, and so will be your offspring. I don't know if you're anything like me, but when you stand in the dark for long enough, you start to see more. Have you noticed? So you're still looking at the stars. That's just like a handful. Oh, wow, there's another one. Wow, there's loads. And suddenly you start seeing more and more and more and more stars because your eyes get accustomed to the darkness. And it's like God is saying, come out of the circumstances where you think I'm dark. I'm bringing you to a place that seems even darker. But if you can get my perspective on it, you're going to start seeing some promises. You're going to start seeing the grandness of the vision I have over your life that you can't see because you're in what you think is a dark room. Church, sometimes our circumstances can get darker and darker and darker, but if we get God's perspective, the perspective of prayer, and we start saying, God, I know you're showing me something in this, then actually what's happening is there's stars coming out in the midst of the darkness that are the promises of God. Because see, the temptation of all of us is to reduce our vision when it starts getting tough. We start looking and going, God, I can't see what you're doing. I can't see it anymore. I don't think you are who you say you are. And we start hiding in our dark room of a tent. God's blessings are there for everybody else, not me. But he calls him out. And he starts seeing more and more stars. This God's saying, oh, you've reduced your vision to think that, like, we're praying for these three friends. And I'm struggling to believe that any, even one of them could have an encounter with you, God. God's saying, don't minimize the vision. Don't let it get smaller. Open your eyes to where I've got you. Open up your eyes to my perspective. The stars that are coming out all over the place. You're struggling to pray for one of your friends to have an encounter with me when I'm going to promise you your whole family. Oh, that our vision would start to get enlarged rather than allowing the dark rooms of our circumstances to diminish and devolve and to reduce who we are. Church, the dark room is not the destination. It's part of the process. And God is shifting Abraham's perspective. Oh, how I need that in my life. How often my prayers are like, hello, God, where have you got me? God, why does it seem so dark here? Hello, I'm a Christian. Get me out of here. As the camera pans out. So often my prayer, place of prayer is so often about gaining understanding of what God is doing and how he's doing it and when he's going to do it. But I just wonder if the perspective of prayer is instead meant to be the place of encounter 
where those moments of prayer, our head is lifted and we see things from God's perspective. Look toward heaven. You see in the dark, I am speaking, I am sharing some promise. Can you see it? I'm working my will. Working my will. Do you know what the will of God is for your life? So often my prayers are consumed with God. Will you do this? Will you do that? God's like, I'm working something over here. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, my favorite verse in the Bible. It says, the will of God. I'm like, I'm listening. I want to know what the will of God is for my life. It says, the will of God is that you would be sanctified. It should come up on the screen. The will of God is that you would be sanctified. See, the will of God for your life is you become more and more like him. You become increasingly like who he is. Oh, but God, I wanted to know whether I was meant to go this direction, take that job or this job, or, 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 or I was meant to marry this person or that person. God, I, 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 that's what I want to know. God's like, yeah, but I want you just to become more and more like me. This is the plotted history of Abraham's life and the will of God for Abraham. God said to Abraham, I'm going to send you out. Abraham said, where? And God said, I'll tell you later. Right now, just go. And then God said, I'll give you land. Abraham said, where? And God said, I'll tell you later. Just wander. And then God says, I'll give you a child. And Abraham says, how? And God says, I'll tell you later. Just wait. And finally, God sends a child. And he says, Abraham, kill your child. And Abraham says, why? And God says, I'll tell you later. Walk up the mountain, take the knife, and take the fire. So often our prayers are asking where, how, and why. And God is replying with just go, just wander, just wait. I am working my will for you to become more and more like me. Come out of your dark room and shift your perspective. There's a verse in Hebrews, eight, uh, Hebrews 11, verse 8. It says of Abraham this. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. Listen to this. And he went out not knowing where he was going. Just wait. Just go. Just wander. Church, this is the journey of a Jesus follower. If we can get this perspective in our prayers... God, you're working something. Help me see it in the midst of this darkness. Your promises are true and you are faithful. Can you show me what you're doing in this moment? That's the journey of this church. We've got vision. This makes me laugh because you have no idea what's going on in my brain when I start announcing there's a vision Sunday in the middle of February. Because I'm like, God, you've got to give us a vision. <laughs> I've got a vision Sunday in a couple of weeks. You've got to give us a vision because I have no idea. But you know what, church? Can I just say this? We might do some stuff over here and we may do some stuff over there. And we call it vision. It's an invitation just to see what God wants us to be. We might do some stuff and go, actually, do you know what? We got this well wrong. We weren't meant to be doing that. We were meant to be doing this. Let's go over here. I'm less interested in what we do. I'm more interested in who we're becoming through the process. The perspective of our prayers. Oh, God, make me more like you. Make me more and more and more like you. If the circumstances of your darkness are causing you to lose heart and doubt the promises of God, look heaven, look toward heaven and be reminded who you are and who you are to be like. See, when we get that perspective in our prayers, we start to realize that we're connected to something bigger than ourselves. We are connected to something that is far bigger than us and we are not alone as we think we are. We have a God who always keeps his promises, who knows the number of the stars in the sky because he put them there. Oh, that my prayer life would be consumed with that perspective. But how do we know? 
Let me just play devil's advocate for a minute. You don't hear a pastor say that very often. How do we know? How do we know that God will do what God has said? Just believe. Believe and you'll receive. But how do I know? How can I be sure? Oh, but God's been faithful up to this point, so he's going to be faithful through. Yeah, well, that's great. But how can I know that God is going to do what God has said he will do? And I think Abraham helps us with this. I think Abraham's faith is more like ours than we perhaps think when we first look. Just look at verse 6. It says, and he believed the Lord. Interesting thing there that he believed the Lord, not in the, in the Lord. He believed the Lord and who the Lord was. And he counted to him as righteousness. And then verse 7 it says, and he said to him, this is God, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. So up to this point, I've been faithful to you, Abraham. So you should be faithful. You should know that I'm going to. But Abraham's response, oh, Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know that you're going to be a God of your word? How do I know you're going to come through for me? Abraham's life was so much like the father described in Mark 9. Mark 9, Jesus is walking and this man, this father brings his child to Jesus and says, Jesus, if there's something you can do, please do it. And Jesus says, there's no if. There's no if in this. If you believe, then it shall be. And so the, the father says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. It's Mark 9, 24. Immediately the father cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Oh, to bring that little bit of faith that we have and lay it before God in prayer, admitting that I need an increase, that I need more, that the reality of the perspective of my prayers is that I am struggling to believe who you are right now, that you will fulfill all your promises. That is where Abraham is. This is real life stuff. God, you've, you've been faithful up to now, but I'm not sure about the rest of it. How can I know you will be who you say you are? And so God says to Abraham, come on, Abraham. There's the title deeds to the land. I've paid the deposit. I paid the solicitor's fees for you. The removal men have been booked. Oh, and get a pregnancy test because your wife's with child. No, in case you've not read the Bible, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say that to Abraham. He doesn't offer it up on a silver platter and say, there you go, let's, let's just make the way clear for you there. It's all sorted. It's not what he says to Abraham. In fact, in verse 9, what God responds to uh, Abraham's request is this. Bring me a heifer three years old. And who says God hasn't got a sense of humor? A female goat three years old and a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he didn't cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abraham drove them away. I mean, talk about an unexpected twist in the story. It's like, what is going on here? I, I, I'm struggling to believe that you are who you say you are, that you're going to... Okay, so what you need to do is go and get me some animals and let's start cutting them in half. And actually what he was doing was he was laying half the animal that side and half that side, half and half, half and half. What's interesting is Abraham hears God tell him, go and get all these animals, but he doesn't tell Abraham what to do with them, yet Abraham knows what to do. My brain starts going, that's interesting. How did Abraham know what he had to do with those animals without being told? But you see, what's happening is something really significant in antiquity. In ancient Middle Eastern culture, this is really significant what's taking place here. Because we live in a, in a written culture, don't we? We write stuff down. So I've got my notes here written down. And we pass information. We're texting each other. And we, we record history through writing it down. We will, we will enter into a contract with somebody by signing our name. 
And so last week we were at Zach and Layla's wedding. And on the Saturday, they, they stood before each other and they made promises, didn't they? For richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part, forsaking all others. What happens in that moment was we were going through the vows with Layla and Zach. Layla turns to Zach and goes, oh, worthy groom of mine, how can I be sure you're going to do what you say you're going to do? Because that's how she speaks to Zach. <laughs> how can I know you are going to live up to your words? That it's not just talk, cheap talk. How can I know? Well, actually what happened on the Friday was they went to the registry office and they signed a contract. They signed what we call a wedding certificate that basically said, I am actually signing to say there is something significant in what I am saying. It's not just words. It's not just talk. There are consequences if I do not live up to that which I am saying I will do. Because in our culture where we sign, there are consequences if we break that which we've said. But if you haven't signed, there's no consequences, except maybe a right fist from Layla. <laughs> so there's consequences. For Abraham, there was no signing because he didn't live in a written culture. Abraham is part of an oral storytelling culture. But they are entering into a contract. In the biblical language, it uses the word covenant. They're entering into a covenant. And Abraham, the minute he knows, the minute God says, go and get this, this, and this, Abraham's like, I know what's happening here. I know what's going on. And the way these covenants were upheld so that both parties were held to account for what they were agreeing to is that they would act out the terms and the consequences if it was broken. And so essentially what's happening is they're taking these animals to represent what they're agreeing to. They're cutting them in half, laying them on the ground, and they're saying, if I do not stick to what I have said I'm going to do, may my body be cut open, may I be laid on the ground, and may I be feed for the wild animals. It's an oral storytelling culture. I, I think more powerful perhaps than signing. So I'm going to act this out right now. This is what it's going to feel like if I do not stick to that which I've said I am going to do. In case you think I'm making this up. Jeremiah 34, 18. God is speaking and he says, Those who have violated my covenant and not fulfilled the terms of the covenant they made before me, I will treat like the calf they cut in two. And when they walked between its pieces... The leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the court officials, the priests and all the people of the land who walked between the pieces of the calf, listen to this, I will deliver into the hands of their enemies who want to kill them. Their dead bodies will become food for the birds and the wild animals. Isn't that powerful? We're going to act out right now what we're, we're saying the consequences are. So Abraham got all these animals. He knew this was a covenant moment, but I bet he didn't know what was going to happen next. I don't think anybody knew what was going to happen next. If you look in verse 12 of Genesis 15, it says, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham, and behold, a dreadful dark, great darkness fell upon him. Now, what, I need to explain something here. We're getting into some really hard language to, to, to translate into our culture and our understanding. Okay? These next few verses are difficult to understand. I don't think Abraham is fast asleep in this moment and dreaming the rest of it. I think what's happening is the, the description of the darkness and the state that he is in is representing the darkness that has fallen upon him, a darkness that's going to reveal some really dark stuff. And it's going to tell him about his ancestors. He's going to say, your descendants, they're going to be slaves, they're going to be wanderers, they're going to be expelled from the land for 400 years. And by the way, Abraham, this is how you're going to die. So it's quite some dark stuff that this darkness is speaking over Abraham. And then in verse 17, something really strange happens. 
When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. It's like, what is going on here? So we've got animals cut in half. They're put in a line. Abraham is in some kind of darkness as God reveals some stuff. And then this flaming torch and smoking pot starts going between the pieces. It's like, I want to know what kind of smoke was in that pot because this is just a little bit weird. Am I on my own? See, what we're entering into is some language that's really hard to understand. Some preachers like to tell you they've got it all sorted and know exactly what all of it means. And so you get preachers that start speaking about, oh, this represents this group of people. And that king then, that's that ruler now. And this is the United Nations. And this is that, that, and the other. I mean, it's great if you want to go down that route. But I, I feel sorry. I once read, there was a guy, I just felt so sorry for him. Um, th- somebody believed that all the stuff in Revelation pointed to one man in the Northern Ireland Assembly. A poor MP in Northern Ireland. And he did it all. It was all on his website. And he said, if you take the number of kids divided by the number of years that he served, times by the number of the seat that he sits on, you will find out, in fact, that this man is the Antichrist. I was like, I just feel sorry for the poor MP. It's amazing when you start at the end and you go, I want to prove something. I'm going to make it work. But there's stuff in this text that we simply do not understand. Because it just does not, the words we cannot translate. So we work with what we can understand. And one thing we can understand is this. The words that are used for fuming or blazing and the word that is used for smoking are the same words that Moses uses later on, years later, when he encounters God on Mount Sinai. It's the same words. And it's also the same words that are used in Exodus 13, I think it is, where the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, it's the same words that are used. So we might debate whether it looked like a pot or whether it looked like a torch. I don't think I really care that much. One thing is for sure, this is describing God. This is the glory, the very presence of God is arriving and going between the pieces. That's what's going on here. Do you know what though? The fact that God shows up and then goes between the pieces. See what that means? God is going to be doubted. If Abraham's going to doubt God in any way, Abraham, look at what I'm about to do. I am turning up and I'm walking between the pieces. I am walking between these pieces. If you doubt who I am, how can you know you're going to come through for me? How can I know that I can trust you when I cannot see, when I'm in the dark room of my tent? How can I shift my perspective? Because God passed through the pieces. God walked. but So what God is saying is, I am promising to bless you. I will give you what you need. I will bring salvation. I will be your God. And if I do not do what I have promised, may I be cut off. May I be destroyed. May my body be ripped to pieces. Wow. Isn't that amazing? That's what God did to prove who he was. But let me just go a little bit further as devil's advocate. That's great. Okay, I've got to a point where I can trust God because intellectually I understand that God is God. Therefore, God has to always act in complete consistency with the content of his character. So what he says he will do, okay, God will come through and do it. But what about me? God says, I will be your God and you will be my people. I've got no issue with God being my God, but I've got a little bit of an issue with me being your people because I'm not sure I can do it. Oh God, you can bless the person next to me because they're more holy than me. They're more spiritual than me. But what about me? And can I just tell you, the people that you're sat here right now thinking, yeah, they're the Holy Spiritual ones, they're probably thinking that about you. 
because we all think it's somebody else other than us. God, you'll come through, but I'm not sure you'll come through for me because I know what I'm like. Am I worthy? No, I don't think I am. So you need to see what happens. The glory of God comes and it passes between the pieces. And it passes between the pieces alone. Ian, can you come up and play? I'm, I'm lulling these people into a full sense of security that I am finishing. The plane has got its wheels out. I am going to finish here. You see, something we know from archaeology and history is that when a king would enter into a covenant, one of two things would happen. Either the conquered king or the servant would walk through the pieces alone, or the king and the servant would walk through to say, the, the, the lesser of them would say, look, I, I owe you big and I'm going to promise that I'm going to do what I say I'm going to do. Or the king would join them and say, look, let's make this together. If either of us break this, then we walk through these pieces together. But you notice who walks through the pieces, it is not Abraham, he's over here having a, having a dark slumber. God walks through the pieces alone. If I break my promise to you, May I be cut off, may I be struck down, may I be cut into pieces. And if you break your promise to me, may I still be the one that is broken, cut down, destroyed. See what God's saying? This is the gospel. God, how can I trust your character? Because if I don't come through, then I'm the one that's going to be punished. Yeah, but what about me? Yeah, but if you don't come through, I'm still the one that is going to be punished. This starts to shift the perspective of our prayers. Because this is the cross. That I will bless you even if it means I have to die. And it did. The centuries later, a darkness fell as God was dying for humanity. The humanity he'd walked between the pieces for. And he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus forsaken, walking between the pieces so you and I could never have to experience what it feels like for the Father to forsake us. So we are in the darkness of our dark room, not knowing what God is doing, thinking you've deserted me, I am on my own here. And God's like, no, I walk between the pieces. I had one arm stretched out here and another arm stretched out there. I've not deserted you. Start seeing the promises of God in the midst of that which makes no sense. Because if he breaks his promise to you, it's on him. And if he breaks his promise to you, it's on him. Oh, that we'd get this perspective in our prayers. That we would look toward heaven. Because when we do, we see the cost. The cost of the promise that was made to Abraham, it was made to us. And it changes the way we pray. It causes me to come out of my pit of despair, my own little pity party. Oh God, how could I ever be worthy? God, why are these circumstances winning? Really? You think the circumstances are winning? I've already won. I've already done it. All God's promises are yes and amen. Not because of you. Not because of your ability to be able to pray the right words in the right order or living a godly life every day, proving that it's okay for God to answer your prayers. The perspective of prayer, the perspective of heaven says, my ways are not your ways, so trust me. 
My timing is not your timing, so wait for me. My provision is not your provision, so ask me. I have walked between the pieces. I was nailed to the cross, so you know that I will come through for you.